keep peace. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the already 21st episode. After a short break, a holiday break, uh, we're back. And um, this week, I'm going to talk or go back to a topic that I already covered, uh, which is storytelling. And I reached out to Michael Kent. He's uh, based in the US. He did some research and he looked at how we in public relations are or not using the 20 master plots. And the 20 master plots, if you don't know that, it's a, it's a concept of storytelling, of uh, writing. And um, that could be applied to public relations. And as Michael found out during research, this is not really the case. So we're getting into what he discovered. We'll talk about plots, how to use them in public relations. Uh, we'll talk about all these things like the quests and the revenge and the riddle, which are typical plots being used in, in storytelling. Uh, but we can't really find them back again in corporate stories and mission statements. And that is one of the topics we'll be discussing uh, with Michael for the next 30 minutes. Hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Okay, so Michael, welcome on Wag the Dog FM. Thank you. Glad How to be here. Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Okay. Michael, I saw the uh, title of your research paper and, and I said, I need to talk to you. The Power of Storytelling in PR, Introducing the 20 Master Plots. I did an, uh, an interview before in this series of uh, podcast uh, interviews uh, with someone talking about storytelling, but um, then I saw this and I said, let's cover the, the topic again because there's a lot of interest. So uh, tell us a bit more, Michael, the, the power of storytelling in PR and then you're t really focusing on, on the 20 master plot. So tell us a bit of the background of that research. Okay. When you get to be a professor, you, kind of, you get to that point, you get to a point where you don't have to take classes anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, which is, I guess, okay. I know many years ago, I, I vowed that once I got my degree, I wasn't ever going to take a class for a grade again. Because I just didn't like, you know, that part of, yeah. you know, of academia. But a few years ago, I got interested in, you know, some areas. One of my colleagues teaches professional writing. Uh, uh, one of my colleagues across the hall in Oklahoma. And I wanted to sit in on some of his classes just for fun, see what they do, see if there was anything we could learn from them. So I took a class in short story writing from him. And then I took a class in novel writing from him. And I think in the novel writing class, they went over the uh, master plots. Uh, I took him from a book by Tobias. Uh, and uh, he takes us through the master plots to teach the students how to do it. Sitting in the class, it occurred to me that this would be really useful technique for public relations people to understand how to set up a, a, a story, because much of what we're seeing, you know, in terms of storytelling that's out there is very simplistic and there isn't much, you know, sort of explanation of how it's done. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I took this book, uh, I read through it, I sat through the class, I thought I got a lot out of it. And then initially I wrote it up as a conference paper. And, um, it was, it was in terms of a conference paper, it was way too long. I mean, it was, a, it was almost 40 pages long and there was too much there to cover. But when I was writing it up, I was thinking, well, you know, if I just talk about the plots, if I just talk about the master plots, it's not going to be suitable for a conference. It's not going to be academic. It's just going to be sort of a, you know, practice kind of thing. It's not going to get accepted to a conference. This was for the international communication association conference. So 
um, I looked for a frame and Kirk Callahan had a piece on framing that he had written many years ago that I thought was an excellent piece in terms of how to frame this. So I took a look at his piece again and said, you know, what did he do? And he, this is initially why the piece was so long. He had had this huge, you know, magnum opus piece on framing, talked about the theories, the research, everything behind it. And I thought, well, this is a good way to start. So originally I set the paper up that way. But like I said, after the conference, it was too long. It was not going to, you know, no journal, you know, most journals in the U.S. won't accept something more than about six or 7,000 words long. And so it was significantly longer than that. So I had to revise it and rework it. I wanted to keep some of the theory or most of the theory because I didn't see this as just a technique. You know, we'll just apply these 20 plot ideas and we have something. But by the same token, to be able to talk about the plot ideas, it had to have, you know, it had to have a significant portion that wasn't about theory. So I just revised the piece to have this uh, front end focus on the theory behind storytelling and then the back end talking about how we could use these various, you know, story ideas, plot ideas. And then then specifically in PR, because you're, you're looking at plots, 20 master plots in, in traditional storytelling, meaning those are are stories that inform and persuade and 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 all these things but then you're looking at how can we use that in the the, the profession of public relations that is the focus right yeah exactly but actually for me uh, the way I see it is that these aren't something so removed that public relations isn't something that uh, doesn't involve telling a good mm -hmm. story uh, or advertising or, you know, or marketing or many other areas. And that, you know, obviously we tell a different story than a novel writer, but that idea of the heroes and the villains and the underdog, we, that resonates with us, you know, that technique will work for anybody. And so that's what I want to do is to say, this is something that, that isn't something we do in PR now, but this is something that would help us. Yeah. And while researching, have you, have you found, because that's always interesting, of course, have you found um, public relation stories then that are using those techniques at the fullest? Have, have you discovered those or are there any? There's some, they're hard to find. And yeah. I think it's unfortunate because I, I think uh, people take the easy path for most of these things. Like for example, with the web, uh, you know, space doesn't really cost us anything. We can have sort of a limitless amount of space to tell a story. Uh, people opt not to, they tell, you know, the one paragraph story, mm -hmm. which we see on websites and, you know, about us pages and that sort of thing. And uh, I would argue actually that that's fine that we might have sort of the introductory, the teaser for the person who doesn't want to read more than a couple hundred words, we can still use that technique. But we also have the opportunity with say, you know, websites and social media to tell the bigger story, to frame things differently and to do more with it. And so that was one of the issues for me was, you know, trying to find organizations that had done that. And there aren't many who've gone to the, who've gone to the trouble. And then some of them, uh, have sort of dropped it. Like there was a uh, many years ago, Ben and Jerry's, the ice cream people here in the U S Ben and Jerry's ice cream had a huge, um, you know, story. I didn't save it at the time. This was, you know, more than 10 years ago, the first time I saw it, but it had a huge background about the two founders, Ben and Jerry, where they came from, what their upbringing was like, you know, what motivated them to do what they, they did. And it was this whole, you know, story framework, They've gotten rid of it since then. So the simple answer to your question is they're hard to find. There aren't that many. Yeah. But uh, the other answer is that there still are these sort of micro stories out there. 
And it's strange, though, because, as you said, uh, space is cheap. We can produce content also on the cheap. We can write. We can, uh, you know, use video images. All these things are, you know, became very much uh, not expensive to use and incorporate in, in communications. And still, uh, as you said, it's it's very much short form. While on the web, when you look at the web, I mean, the proof is there. Long form still goes goes a long, much longer way uh, in the long tail and all that theory uh, than very short pieces. Uh, so, so there is really an incentive and the proof is there to really st- tell longer stories uh, based on, on those plots that you, you identified. Yeah, and I think some of that influences, you know, it's a little different in every country because we have different sort of models and practices of PR. Uh, in the U.S., we've had real encroachment from advertising mm. into public relations, part of it because in advertising, um, jobs have declined and in public relations, jobs have increased. And so a lot of people from advertising have made the move to PR over the last decade, but it's becoming really a, you know, a bigger issue. And so we have these uh, people, I don't, you know, I don't want to say, you know, people who see the world differently, who came from an advertising background and training, who've moved into PR and have sort of pushed some of those ideas onto PR. And I think it's part of what's resulted in this, make it simple, you know, people don't want to do a lot, people don't want to think a lot. And it misses the fact, something we argued, you know, I think 15 years ago is that we have this potential with the web to to be able to offer so much, you don't have to give it, you know, I don't have to read it. But an organization can meet these multiple interests, multiple publics, people who want more information, people who want simple information. It doesn't cost us anything extra. We can do it with one. We can write the message one time and repurpose it 10 different ways. But what we're seeing isn't that. What we're seeing is just this sort of path of least resistance approach. Yeah, yeah. And that is, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's one of the things that I talk about a lot is that we we have so much um, content already created and we can repurpose it in different forms and formats for different audiences and still we don't do that we 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 really most of the time think one audience one message one kind of or type of uh, of uh, media or content material which is which is a bit crazy yeah so yeah. tell me a bit more about the the master plot so uh, because I mean you've done research but not most of us I think don't know what exactly the master plots are in storytelling so can you can you give a couple of examples sure actually I, let me bring that up real quick um, I guess two things first I did my I wrote my dissertation on funeral oratory mm-hmm. and so um, <laughs> this is something I studied 20 years ago was sort of storytelling it wasn't storytelling at the time it was you know eulogies but <clears throat> uh, I have, you know, I have a training originally before I got into public relations in rhetoric and uh, communication. And so I was familiar with a lot of the storytelling issues and ideas uh, going back to my research originally on eulogies and funeral oratory. And so I think that was probably one of the things that piqued my interest was I already had a sense that this is being done in, in different ways. Uh, so when I sat in on this class with my colleague and he started taking us through these plots, I started thinking, well, you know, this is, you know, sort of obvious, right? Of course we can, we see the underdog and we see the hero and villain, but I realized that there's, you know, that there's great potential with these others. So in the piece, I cover this list of say 20 master plots. You could go to lots of different sources. I'm sure there's, 
Uh, and I've looked, I mean, there's dozens of books with who say, these are the master plots. These are the master plots. It's kind of like in my area in rhetoric, there's the, uh, the canon of rhetoric. And, uh, you know, most people agree on what the canon of rhetoric is, but in terms of what books should you read, what are the most important novels? Everybody has a different idea of what the canon of reading should be. This is similar, right? So mm -hmm. 19 out of 20 of these are probably universal, but you've got, uh, so in the one I use, Tobias talks about the quest. And the quest is, you know, I think pretty self, most of these are self-explanatory in terms of how you think about them, but the quest, the adventure, the pursuit, the rescue, uh, escape, revenge, riddle or mystery, rivalry, underdog, temptation, metamorphosis, transformation, maturation, love, forbidden love, sacrifice, discovery, wretched excess and rise and fall. And, uh, they seem like, you know, like these are obvious, I think, story tropes, but, you know, I've done activities in my classes. I had students, I assigned a different one of these to students with the same theme. And one of my students did this, had forbidden love, which seems like, you know, oh, how does forbidden yeah. love fit in <laughs> with public relations? And she came up with this brilliant angle about this um it was supposed to be a feature story for a, you know, for a newsletter. Uh, that was the premise. And her storyline was um, this student is a public relations student, but they secretly um, are really loving their public, their advertising classes. And they're attracted to these advertising ideals. But as a public relations student, they shouldn't. And so it was a nice little twist, you know, sort of. Uh, to tell the story from the you know, forbidden other department angle. And it really wasn't a love story, right? But it was the idea. Like sure. I, use, I use this plot line to tell my story. And it's something that goes back thousands of years. You know, Aristotle in, in Aristotle's rhetoric wrote about these uh, uh, topoi or starting places for telling stories or, mm -hmm. or for making arguments. And so rhetoric has had the idea of commonplaces of argument for really literally th thousands of years. And so it's not, there's nothing new, but by giving us this technique, and I guess another one would be in public speaking for probably a hundred years, we've taught there are different techniques. We use different ways of framing our story. So we can use problem to solution. We can use uh, historical, we can use um, you know, different kinds of setups for how to tell our story. And we can tell the same story, but by framing it differently, it's a completely new story. It's a different speech. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same premise here. I can have one issue that I'm dealing with, an organizational issue, organizational members. I want to talk about the organizational members and what they're contributing. And I could use that. I could talk about a quest in terms of how the organization got there. I can talk about a, um, uh, the underdog story about how they were being, you know, uh, pressured from big corporations and, and it was difficult to succeed. And so the idea of having the 20 master plots isn't so much that you have to take this and apply it as a perfect template. It's to show that, look, there are different ways of telling this story that completely transform the idea, but it's still the same, you know, one thing it started with. No, I, I think one of the things that you mentioned is I, I do think that people in PR, in communications or in business in general, who, who do a lot of speeches and presentations do tend to think in, in okay, what will be my storyline and what is the... And, and the techniques, I think those, I mean, at least me at school, we had those in the PR school. Uh, and I know that in business, I mean, there's a lot of business training about how to present and how to tell those stories when you're on stage. Mm -hmm. But but what I, 
I'm just thinking about what you said all the way in the beginning. When you go on a website and you discover an enterprise, a company that you don't really know, and you read those about pages, they're so boring. Why not introduce those kind of things as well in there? And when you you in 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 more in bigger public relations activities, why not use those techniques more and uh, and apply them? So it's yeah, it's totally true. Um, so have you seen differences in, in how organizations I'm thinking about maybe profit, non-profit use those things or don't use them? Or I would think that activists, for instance, are, I, I know a couple of good stories come, coming out of the, the activist uh, area not so much about corporations, but more in the, are there differences that you've seen or is that something that you looked at? Um, well, I've studied activist organizations in, in different research on social media and new technology over the years, not specifically with this idea. When I went looking for examples for these, what I wanted initially was to sort of find examples of all of them, <clears throat> be able to link to different websites of people doing this. And it actually became really difficult to find because how do you search for a story that yeah. someone yeah. Right. Yeah. So you so you sort of have to randomly just start visiting websites or someone has to tell you, you know, they have a good story. And so some of it I had stumbled across. I wrote a book on PR writing several years ago and uh, in gathering things like mission statements and vision statements and, you know, different kinds of things that we talk about and I talked about in my book. Uh, I ran across some very brilliant, you know, mission statements and vision statements that really use narrative techniques to do it. And so I went back to some of those as a starting place. But then uh, original later on, when I tried to find others, how do I find an example of, you know, escape or discovery or or forbidden love? Like I said, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, I started I hit on the about us. So I started visiting the about us pages to see what they had. And I did a search for organizational history because just about every you know major organization has a site with history about the organization, you know, how were they founded, et cetera. And, you know, first thing was just that for almost everyone, there's, there's just so little there, you know, it's a yeah. typical one, one paragraph, sometimes two sentences, sometimes almost nothing at all. And I just, you know, so I've found, it's just sort of hit or miss, you know, you, yeah. you, there's no real model. I don't think there's any, um, and what I think it comes down to is uh, if you think about it, you would, you would think intuitively like an activist organization might do more with this because they have, you know, less resources and, uh, they try to reach publics using different tools. Yeah. That's what I would think. Yeah. 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 But the, what it turns out is the thing is they're not trained to do this. Yeah. Right? That's true. Yeah. They're not taught. So I studied dialogue and it's become a big issue in public relations over the last 10 years. And everybody wants to study dialogue in a new organization. You know, how are pharmaceuticals using dialogue? How are libraries using dialogue? How are schools using dialogue? And they always, almost always conclude, well, actually pretty much always conclude that, wow, they're not using dialogue at all and they should. And it seems sort of terrible, but after you do a couple of these studies, you realize they're not using dialogue because they have no idea what dialogue is because no one taught them about dialogue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how could you possibly use a tool that you have no idea exists or what it does? Yeah. And I think it's the same thing here. You don't see storytelling told because if you do a search for storytelling and you look, what are, what's the advice being given to professionals on storytelling? There are thousands and thousands of pages of organizational sites from some of the major PR advertising marketing organizations in the world. And their storytelling advice is essentially non-existent. Storytelling is just something to get people's attention. And they just, and they actually just assume that everybody knows what a story is. We don't have to explain it. 
And I think it just results in really simplistic messages. No, that is totally true. I think uh, in my discussion on storytelling, the, the, the first one that I, I took it as a topic, um, it, it that was the thing. My, my, my intake was, well, you know, we in PR, we've been telling stories for ages. Where if you really look at the techniques and the things that you can use and, and what you said, the master plots and the narrative and all these things, uh, that is not necessarily something that is being taught today at PR schools. I know it isn't. Uh, and, uh, and when you look for a good training session or, or really a course on how to really learn how to use storytelling techniques in the context of communications, corporate comms, public relations, then, you know, you, there, there, there is room for improvement, definitely. I'm, I'm amazed though, Michael, that you said I found some very good mission statements because I think those are the most boring things <laughs> ever. And they always start with, you know, global solution provider and innovative and all these, yeah, you know, yeah. buzzwords. So, uh, <laughs> that's, you know. <laughs> well, it, it's not easy, but when I was writing my book, I, I, you know, those are the ones I didn't want to include, right? I wanted to say, uh, I, uh, I had an assignment I used to do with some of my graduate students where they had to do a special occasion speech at a class I taught at Rutgers uh, many years ago. And uh, a student gave a acceptance speech that was sort of like an Academy Award acceptance speech. And it was almost exactly what you would have seen on TV from somebody standing up giving their acceptance speech. Mm-hmm. And I think I gave... I gave her a B on it, I think, maybe a B plus. It was, it was competent, right? It was a good speech. And afterwards, she wanted to know, well, this was perfect, right? This is brilliant. I mean, I did exactly what they did on TV. And I said, that exactly, right? Yeah. Nobody remembers the speech that's like every other speech. No. They remember the speech that's, that's different. And so um, I wanted to convey that, yeah, there are mission statements and vision statements, and some of them are horrible, uh, and some of them are just fine. But the best ones do more. The best ones really give... Uh, you know, they position the organizations better. They say more. So I searched for days, you know, <laughs> and I came up with at the time, probably a dozen that were pretty good, but most of them are just really, like you say, they're pretty banal. They don't say much. No, I, and, uh, I, I think when, when I do exercises on that with, with clients, I do a bit of consulting and uh, most, you know, I just let them, you know, go ahead, you know, right. Well, you know, think about the core of your business and what you do and what you stand for and all these things and where you come from and then write something. And then the the best test is always say, okay, well, this is nice. It's full of very nice words <laughs> like innovation and solutions and what have you. Uh, and then I said, now just change your brand name with that of your direct competitor. Would that work? And then they all go, oh yeah, it would. <laughs> and then it's not really a good one, right? Oh yeah, well, Jack Grosso worked at AT and T as a you know senior PR person for twenty years, and we knew him. Uh, I knew him from Rutgers. He was teaching some classes, and Jack used to say, you know, you go into a meeting, and most of the time, no one's done anything to prepare, and nobody likes those meetings. And you're in there, and sometimes you're not paying attention. You know, you're daydreaming, and somebody says, "What do you think, Jack?" And he <laughs> he says, "Well, I came up with the perfect answer. All you have to do is say." I don't know. How does this fit in with the mission of our organization? (laughs) And I think that's true, right? You know, if, and of course, if it's not, if it's this uh, procedural mission statement that doesn't do anything for you, but if it's a, if it's a well-crafted, thoughtful mission statement that actually is more than just what everybody says, now you've got something to talk about. That's a good question to ask, you know? Yeah, it's a perfect question. I'm just laughing because most of the time, you know, but I'm thinking about those really lame mission statements and it's a good thing when they you're caught off guard and then just say, well, you know, how would that fit with our... But of course, if it's a good one, if you have a, a clear, uh, solid mission statement, then that is something that is always 
uh, a good question to ask because it should govern anything that an organization is doing, be it launching a new product or, or, or doing a PR activity. It, it, it should fit in the, in, in the real good mission statement, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so what, uh, any other things that you've, you've seen that you said, well, um, because I would think you're confirming that it, it's difficult to find them. So the, the good, the good uh, examples of, of good storytelling in public relations using master plots. Um, you would think that someone already created, I don't know, an educational course on that or something like that. Have you found that? Is, is, is there any way for PR people saying, look, I really want to integrate this. I want to study this. I want to. Um, well, there's nothing wrong. I guess there's nothing preventing us. The simple answer is no. There's a couple of reasons why in the U S um, you know, it would be different, slightly different reasons in other places, but there's a, I think there's a big disconnect between how practitioners see what they do and should do and how academics see what they do and mm -hmm. should do. And there's a lot of suspicion in the U S uh, in many other countries, PR senior PR people have advanced degrees, mm -hmm. but in the U S it's really fairly common for senior people to just have bachelor's degrees. Uh, you know, e even people who have their own agencies and stuff. And in some ways there's a anti, um, intellectual, anti-academic um, thought in some professionals. I had recent meetings with um, all of my advertising colleagues and a bunch of my PR colleagues. And last year I was on, or the year before I was on sabbatical and I went to China and I went to New Zealand, I went to Australia and I got to have talks with professionals from, you know, really all over the world. And there really is different views on this. I mean, it's very different than how we see it. And so in the U S we do have this sense of there's a concern. I think they, they think we're smarter or they don't trust us. And what I'm getting at is just that. So because of that, what we get is, not much of a willingness to take chances, to experiment, to try new things among professionals. Mm -hmm. uh, and then among academics, um, we are, we're motivated by different things in, you know, to, to get promoted as a professor. We write an article, um, an article that maybe nobody reads, but getting it published in a good journal is what's seen as what's sure. important. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think what happens then is that we have a different view of how to look at this. And I, and I think that's a wrong, I think it's a mistake. So I like to think of it as understanding that these plots are like a premise, like a story premise. So when you were, you know, when you're, when you're writing as an undergraduate, maybe, or even in high school, primary school years ago, someone might have said, what's the premise of this story? And the premise is sort of a summary, you know, one sentence summary of what the story is about. Mm -hmm. And a plot is the same thing. You know, it's, yeah. uh, it's sort of a, uh, uh, the bare bones of what is it? What is the story I'm telling? And so I think there's great potential for us to do so much more with this, to start integrating more about um, using persuasive techniques and using informational techniques. There's also in some places this fear that, you know, persuasion is somehow anti-PR, that it's unethical. But there's so much potential for persuasion with social media if you see persuasion, not as a, you know, a negative thing, a pejorative thing, persuasion, we have so much ability as you suggested, right? Social media lets us use vi visuals. It lets us use audio and text and video. We have text. We can use imagery. We combine all of the tools of the best communication in this social media you know, potential. And then we fill it with these simple messages with, you know, short content. And so, um, 
what I would like to see would be people taking it further. There's the potential for experimental research to see what kinds of messages work best or how could they be used in different ways or what media are best for this, what, you know, social media outlets. So the, my answer is there, there isn't a lot that I've seen. All right. So your is there much about yeah. this? It's hard to find. Yeah. Um, but I actually think it's informed by something that's been around for a really long time. So it's informed by persuasion. It's informed by public communication skills that have been around for literally thousands of years. It's informed by a bunch of areas that we know already exist, but we tend not to teach them. Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a pity. I think there's a, there's a, a huge opportunity here. I, I would, I would think that um, here in Europe, the, the, the relation, let's say with academics and the profession are a bit different. Um, and, and I know from colleagues that at least a couple of them, we, we, we do tend to study after a couple of years that we say, okay, now we need a bit of uh, extra. I, I mean, I recently took a course and I know colleagues of mine did exactly the same on reputation management. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, if there would be other things, I mean, we, we do continue to study and work at least together, uh, with academics doing research with them. So there's probably a different relationship, but still, uh, there is room for, for looking at how we can, Uh, create something that uh, that PR can be used, you know, that that these storytelling techniques can be used in public relations. Definitely, yeah. Michael, to to just round up, I'll I'll uh, I'll let you go afterwards. But uh, what 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 would be your your advice to PR people? Uh, and of course, well, mainly here the audience is European, but but I, I have people listening in the US and in Australia. So, uh, but what what would be your advice on? Exactly those storytelling techniques, the master plots and, and public relations. What, what would be your advice to uh, professionals? Um, okay, well, to professionals, I would first um, say, um, I think I'd probably first say, be aware that we have the ability with tools like storytelling to do so much more and reach different kinds of audiences and publics. So we teach We teach um, students that PR, public relations professionals have multiple stakeholders and multiple publics and that we need to have relationships with them. And so we teach this sort of basic premise. But then the tool that's become the default these days, social media, treats everybody the same. Right. So organizations that use Twitter, organizations that use Facebook have very limited control over reaching different stakeholders and publics because all stakeholders and publics are reduced to one thing. And so I would suggest that the storytelling techniques give us the ability to differentiate different kinds of publics. So they can be used on websites, they can be used in other ways, but they can also be used in social media. And by creating stories that resonate with different groups and different publics, we're attracting the interest of people who care about those things. And so the technique, I believe, would be something that gives us the power to uh, to reach different publics, even though we might be using this tool that limits our ability to reach different mm -hmm. publics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I would say number two is to, is to start playing around with them. They can be used in memos. You know, you can tell, you can frame a memo. I don't, don't want to say framing. I mean, framing is a, a good description. I mean, you can frame a memo using a uh, a plot line that is rivalry uh, or temptation or greed, right? You can frame it that way and you don't have to use those words, but the gist of it is that we've, we're having difficulty because there's this rivalry or there's this uh, conflict here. So we use this 
plot as a way to frame some everyday communication tool. And what I'm getting at is just that you need to play with these. You need to play with some different angles, with the different ways of telling the story to start getting good at it and becoming competent and seeing that there's, there's ways of framing this that can have a different impact. And so I guess that would be the second one would be to start um, to start toying with them, to have the list, to give some thought to how to tell that story in a different way. And you can use it, like I said, in everyday contexts like memos. You can use them uh, for web content that you create. You can use them for historical content that you create. You can use them in proposals or in, um, you know, campaign you know, campaign materials. There's all sorts of ways to do it, but until you play with them, people get locked into one way of doing things. So sometimes, you know, a technique that some people like is to sort of lead with a quote when they're telling a story or something like that. And they always do that, right? It's like sort of the Dale Carnegie lead, start with a Mm -hmm. joke, except some people can't tell a joke. No, and jokes are very dangerous depending on cultural context. Exactly. And so it's, it's, it's in general, it's horrible advice, but it's still the best selling public speaking book probably in existence is to start with a joke. And so I think it's the same principle here. We get locked into doing things one way. We have a technique that we learned that works for us and we're comfortable with it. And it prevents us from realizing that if I told this story differently, it has a completely different impact. So that would be the two things, I guess, would be, like I said, that we have the potential to do more with this and reach publics better and we need to play with them to get good with them we need to understand the possibilities great stuff michael well thank you for uh, taking the time to be on the wag the dog it's a really interesting topic and uh, we'll definitely uh, cover that again because i think there's a lot of stuff that can be done uh, as you said so uh, we'll we'll keep an eye on that thank you for being on the show okay no problem nice to talk to you so there you go. I hope that you've learned about the uh, the 20 master plots uh, during this podcast. Now do go to the uh, show notes. Um, if you want a copy of Michael's research paper, you'll have to send him an email. Uh, I cannot just republish that. You'll have to send him an email. There's a link in the uh, podcast notes where you can do that. I also included a, a checklist for the 20 master plots. That's a PDF that you can download. It's also an interesting uh, little thing to, to keep next to you if you're writing stories. And then, of course, uh, links to uh, Michael's uh, books that he published, uh, 20 master plots, how to build them, uh, public relations writing, barebone public speaking, and also a link to his book, on uh, toast eulogies introductions and other special occasion speeches which is an, an interesting given so i hope you enjoyed this if you like the show please go to itunes and review uh, give a couple of stars and uh, put in a comment please and also if you have any suggestions as to topics and speakers please do leave me a message send me an email or go to uh, speakpipe wag the dog and that's the place where you can leave an audio message which i then can include in the next episode so uh, looking forward to talk to you again next week and until then do the right thing keep the peace